Hey everyone, welcome to Bottom of the Bottle. My name is Manny Gonzalez. Thanks for checking me out here. Uh, for those of you that don't know my Life by the Drop 2112 page, check that out. It's tagged on this post and vice versa, where I do some music wine pairings. And everyone check out Adam and I in our podcast, Bottom of the Bottle, a dive into the world of wine two bottles at a time on Spotify. This is basically where we dive into the wine. He's got a bottle, I got a bottle, we talk about it, we talk about the region, the history, some of the stories, the anecdotes, and we like to dispel myths as much as we can. And one myth I want to dispel is about sparkling wine. Now first of all, sparkling wine or the bubbles of wine is just a byproduct of fermentation. Yeast eats sugar, poops alcohol, and a byproduct of that is farting carbon dioxide. This happens if you're making wine, if you're making beer, if you're gonna make a whiskey and you make a distiller's beer, or make a wine and make a brandy, it's the same process. In fact, if you leave a can of tomato sauce on your counter too long, and it's warm enough, and you see that top pop up, once it's been opened, yeast, which is in the air, is eating the sugar, pooping alcohol, and farting carbon dioxide, and that's why it's bubbly, and also why it can be stinky. But the first people that actually bottled bubbles were the monks of Lemur that we know of were the monks of Lemur 490 years ago in 1531. Um, at this time it was the Little Ice Age, it was really cold in the Northern Hemisphere, especially through Northern Europe, um, and because we were in the foothills of the Pyrenees, it got really, really cold here. Now what was happening was that the monks were making a relatively sweet wine, so there was still a lot of sugar in that bottle. The yeast hadn't died off yet because yeast either dies off if it gets too hot or it dies off if you get too much alcohol. Um, basically, they drink themselves to death. But if you have a low amount of alcohol, five, six, seven percent, which means you have a lot of sugar in there, then you cool that bottle down, the yeast will go to sleep, and when it wakes up, it'll start um, eating the sugars, start pooping alcohol, and start farting carbon dioxide. So in the springtime, when it got warm enough, the monks would open up this bottle, I'm like, wow, this is pretty frothy, this is really tasty. We often credit the monks of Champagne and Dom Perignon, who, by the way, never said, brother, come, I'm tasting the stars, as a myth. Um, they wanted to stop that from happening. But we credit them for what we call méthode champenoise, traditional method, méthode traditionnelle. I mean, Champagne is right in that, méthode champenoise, the Champagne method. But the people that really created this method were a little further north. They were the British. What did you say? That's right, the British. And this is how it happened. You see, in the late 16th, early 17th century, uh, the British were buying barrels of champagne from the French. At that time, champagne was only served, sold in barrels. Because the wines were relatively sweet, as most wines were at the time, um, there was a lot of sugar left in the wine. It wasn't a fully dry wine at all. Uh, and because it was so cold, the yeast would go dormant in the wintertime. Now, when those barrels made it over um, the English Channel, made it to London in the taverns, up on the tavern uh, bar, as it warmed up, the yeast would awaken, would start eating the sugars, start pooping alcohol, and start farting carbon dioxide. Now, the British already liked bubbly things because they liked beer, and they really fell in love with this style of wine and learned early on that if you were to take a bottle and add the champagne to it, the wine from the Champagne region, and add a little bit of sugar and molasses to that bottle, you would get more carbon dioxide. And the real game changer was really the precursor to the Industrial Revolution. Remember Tiny Tim and um, Ebenezer Scrooge and you had to keep yourself with a lump of coal? That's because the British were using all of the wood for the Royal British Navy. And they had to use coal to actually create the glass to keep their homes. 
which created a lot of smog, but it made a thicker glass. And each bottle of champagne has about 90 PSI. That's about as much as a really good road bike. Um, and imagine thin glass with a lot of pressure in there is really dangerous. And so that was a game changer. But the real change happened in 1662 when Christopher Merritt, who was a botanist, he was a beekeeper, uh, he was a brewer, and he was a scientist, wrote a paper for the Royal British Academy. And in this paper, he basically outlined how to make sparkling wine in the bottle, what we call the liquor triage. And this is a part of champagne where you make a still wine, you add yeast and sugar, put a cap on it, and in the case of champagne, might sit for several years, yeast eats the sugar, poops alcohol, farts carbon dioxide, etc., etc. That was about 20 years before Dom Perignon never said, brothers come, I'm tasting the stars. It was actually the British, which to me was one of the wildest stories I'd ever heard in my entire life. It was so crazy that when I called Adam and I told him, he called me up to yell at me. Um, but that's okay, we're friends. But, you know, I think it's also awesome that there is this historic partnership between the British and the French, although they were always at war and they always still don't seem to like each other. We have to thank both of them for creating some of the most beautiful wines in the world. Check us out next week when we talk about Proloxera uh, and break down how it was really beneficial to the wine industry. Even though thousands of vines died, we got much better wine out of it. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll see you soon. Cheers.